Section 24 of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Beauty and the Beast by Madame de Villeneuve. Translated by James Lushy. Part 6. The king, accompanied by his daughter and the prince, was ushered by the monkey officers into the apartment destined for him by the fairy who took this opportunity of restoring to the statues the liberty of relating what they had witnessed. As their fate had excited the compassion of the queen, it is from her hands that the fairy desired they should receive the benefit of reanimation. She placed her wand in the queen's hand, who by her instructions described with it seven circles in the air, and then pronounced these words, Be reanimated, your king is restored to you. All the statues immediately began to move, walk, and act as formerly, retaining only a confused idea of what had happened to them. After this ceremony, the fairy and the queen returned to the king, whom they found in conversation with Beauty and the prince, caressing each in turn, and most fondly his daughter, of whom he inquired a hundred times how she had been preserved from the wild beast who had carried her off without remembering that she had answered him from the first time that she knew nothing about it, and had been ignorant even of the secret of her birth. The prince also talked without being attended to, repeating a hundred times the obligations he was under to Princess Beauty. He desired to acquaint the king with the promises which the fairy had made him, that he should marry the princess, and to beg he would not refuse his cheerful consent to the alliance. This conversation and these caresses were interrupted by the entrance of the queen and the fairy. The king, who had recovered his daughter, fully appreciated his happiness, but was as yet ignorant to whom he was indebted for this precious gift. It is to me, said the fairy, and I alone can explain to you the adventure. I shall not limit my benefits to the recital of that alone. I have other tidings in store for you, not less agreeable. Therefore, great king, you may note this day as one of the happiest of your life. The company, perceiving that the fairy was about to commence her narration, events by their silence the great attention they were anxious to pay to it to satisfy their curiosity the fairy thus addressed the king beauty my liege and perhaps the prince are the only persons present who are not acquainted with the laws of the fortunate island it is necessary i should explain those laws to them the inhabitants of that island and even the king himself are allowed perfect liberty to marry according to their inclinations in order that there may be no obstacle whatever to their happiness 
It was in virtue of this privilege that you, sire, selected for your wife a young shepherdess, whom you met one day when you were hunting. Her beauty and her good conduct were considered by you deserving of that honour. You raised her to the throne and placed her in a rank from which the lowliness of her birth seemed to have excluded her, but of which she was worthy. By the nobleness of her character and the purity of her mind, you know that you had continual reasons to rejoice in the selection you had made. Her gentleness, her obliging disposition, and her affection for you equalled the charms of her person, but you did not long enjoy the happiness of beholding her. After she had made you the father of beauty, you were under the necessity of travelling to the frontiers of your kingdom to suppress some revolutionary demonstrations of which you had received intimation. During this period, you lost your dear wife, an affliction which you felt the most sensibly, because in addition to the love with which her beauty had inspired you, you had the greatest respect for the many rare qualities that adorned her mind. Despite her youth and the little education she had received, you found her naturally endowed with profound judgment, and your wisest ministers were astonished at the excellent advice she gave you and the policy by which she enabled you to succeed in all your undertakings. The king, who still brooded over his affliction, and to whose imagination the death of that dear wife was ever present, could not listen to this account without being sensibly affected. And the fairy, who observed his emotion, said, Your feelings prove that you deserved that happiness. I will no longer dwell on a subject that it is so painful to you, but I must reveal to you that the supposed shepherdess was a fairy and my sister, who, having heard that the Fortune Island was a charming country, and also much praise of its laws and of the gentle nature of your government, was particularly anxious to visit it. The dress of a shepherdess was the only disguise she assumed, intending to enjoy for a short time a pastoral life. You encountered her in her new abode, her youth and beauty touched your heart. She yielded to a desire to discover whether the qualities of your mind equaled those she found in your person. She trusted to her condition and power as a fairy, which could place her at a wish beyond the reach of your assiduities, if they became too importunate, or if you should presume to take advantage of the humble position in which you found her. She was not alarmed at the sentiments with which you might inspire her, and persuaded that her virtue was sufficient to guarantee her against the snares of love. She attributed her sensations to a simple curiosity to ascertain if there were still upon the earth men capable of loving virtue, unembellished by exterior ornaments, which rendered it more brilliant and respectable to vulgar souls than its own intrinsic merit, and frequently, by their fatal attractions, obtain the reputation of virtue for the most abominable vices.
Under this illusion, far from retreating to our common asylum, as she had at first proposed, she chose to inhabit a little cottage she had raised for herself in the solitude in which you met her, accompanied by a phantom representing her mother. These two persons appeared to live there upon the produce of a pretended flock that had no fear of the wolves, being in fact genie in that form. It was in that cottage she received your attentions, which produced all the effect you could desire. She could not resist the offer you made her of your crown. You know now the extent of the obligations you were under to her at a time when you imagined she owed everything to you, and were satisfied to remain in that error. What I now tell you is a positive proof that ambition had no share in the consent she accorded to your wishes. You are aware that we look upon the greatest kingdoms but as gifts which we can bestow on anyone at our pleasure. But she appreciated your generous behavior in esteeming herself happy in uniting herself to so excellent a man. She rashly entered into that engagement without reflecting on the danger which she thereby incurred. For our laws expressly prohibit our union with those who have not as much power as ourselves, more especially when we have not arrived at that age, when we are privileged to exercise our authority over others and enjoy the right of presiding in our turn. Previous to that time, we are subordinate to our elders and that we may not abuse our power we have only the liberty of disposing of our hands in favour of some spirit or sage, whose knowledge is at least equal to our own. It is true that after that period we are free to form what alliance we please, but it is seldom that we avail ourselves of that right, and never without scandal to our order. Those who do, are generally old fairies who almost always pay dearly for their folly for they marry young men who despise them and although they are not punished as criminals they are sufficiently punished by the bad conduct of their husbands on whom they are not permitted to avenge themselves it is the only penalty imposed upon them the disagreements which almost inevitably followed the indiscretion they have committed, takes from them the desire of revealing to those profane persons from whom they expected respect and attention, the great secrets of art. My sister, however, was not placed in either of these positions. Endowed with every charm that could inspire affection, she was not of the required age, but she consulted only her love, she flattered herself she could keep her marriage a secret. She succeeded in so doing for a short time. We rarely make inquiries about those who are absent. Each is occupied with her own affairs, and we fly through the world, doing good or ill, according to our inclinations, without being obliged at our return to account for our actions 
unless we have been guilty of some act which causes us to be talked about, or that some beneficent fairy, moved by the unjust percussion of some unfortunate mortal, lays a complaint against the offender. In short, there must arise some unforeseen event to occasion us to consult the general book in which all we do is written at the same instant without the aid of hand. Saving these occasions, we have only to appear in the general assembly three times in the year, and as we travel very swiftly, the affair does not occupy more than a couple of hours. My sister was obliged to give light to the throne, such is our phrase, for the performance of that duty. On such occasions, she arranged for you a hunting party at some distance, or a journey of pleasure, and after your departure she feigned some indisposition to remain alone in her cabinet, or that she had letters to write, or that she wished to repose. Neither in the palace nor amongst us was there any suspicion of that which it was so much her interest to conceal. This mystery, however, was not one for me. The consequences were dangerous, and I warned her of them. But she loved you too much to repent the steps she had taken. Desiring even to justify it in my eyes, she insisted that I should pay you a visit. Without flattering you, I confess that if the sight of you did not compel me entirely to excuse her weaknesses, it at least diminished considerably my surprise at it, and increased the zeal with which I laboured to keep it a secret. Her dissimulation was successful for two years, but at length she betrayed herself. We are obliged to confer a certain number of favours on the world generally, and to return an account of them. When my sister gave in hers, it appeared that she had limited her excursions and her benefits to the confines of the fortunate island. Several of our ill-natured fairies blamed this conduct, and our queen, in consequence, demanded of her why she had restricted her benevolence to this small corner of the earth, when she could not be ignorant that a young fairy was bound to travel far and wide and manifest to the universe at large our pleasure and our power. As this was no new regulation, my sister could not murmur at the enforcement of it, nor find a pretext for objecting to obey it. She promised, therefore, to do so, but her impatience to see you again, the fear of her absence being discovered at the palace, the impossibility of acting secretly, on a throne did not permit her to absent herself long enough and often enough to fulfil her promise, and at the next assembly she could hardly prove that she had been out of the fortunate island for a quarter of an hour. Our queen, greatly displeased with her, threatened to destroy that island, and so prevent her continuing to violate our laws. This threat agitated her so greatly that the least sharp-sighted fairy could see to what a point she carried her interest for that fatal island. And the wicked fairy, who turned the prince here present into a frightful monster, 
was convinced by her confusion that on opening the great book she should find in it an important entry which would afford some exercise to her propensities for mischief. It is there, she exclaimed, that the truth will appear and that we shall learn what has really been her occupation. And with these words, she opened the volume before the whole assembly and read the details of all that had taken place during the last two years in a loud and distinct voice. All the fairies made an extraordinary uproar on hearing of this degrading alliance, and overwhelmed my wretched sister with the most cruel reproaches. She was degraded from our order and condemned to remain a prisoner amongst us. If her punishment had consisted of the first penalty only, she would have consoled herself. But the second sentence, far more terrible, made her feel all the rigour of both. The loss of her dignity little affected her, but loving you fondly, she begged with tears in her eyes that they would be satisfied with degrading her and not deprive her of the pleasure of living a simple mortal with her husband and her daughter. Her tears and supplications touched the hearts of the younger judges, and I felt from the murmur that arose that if the votes had been collected at that instant, she would certainly have escaped with the reprimand. But one of the eldest, who from her extreme decrepitude had obtained amongst us the name of the mother of the seasons, did not give the queen time to speak and admit that pity had touched her heart as well as the others. There is no excuse for this crime cried the detestable old creature in her cracked voice. If it is permitted to go unpunished, we shall be daily exposed to similar insults. The honour of our order is absolutely involved in it. This miserable being, attached to earth, does not regret the loss of a rank, which elevated her a hundred degrees higher above monarchs than they are above their subjects. She tells us that her affections, her fears, and her wishes all turn upon her unworthy family. It is through them we must punish her. Let her husband deplore her. Let her daughter, the shameful fruit of her illegal marriage, become the bride of a monster to expiate the folly of a mother who could allow herself to be captivated by the frail and contemptible beauty of a mortal. This cruel speech revived the severity of many who had been previously inclined to mercy, those who continued to pity her being too few to offer any opposition. The sentence was approved of in its integrity, and our queen herself, whose features had indicated a feeling of compassion, resuming their severity, confirmed the majority of votes in favour of the motion of the ill-natured old fairy. My sister, however, in her endeavours to obtain a revocation of this cruel decree, to propitiate her judges, 
and to excuse her marriage, had drawn so charming a portrait of you that it inflamed the heart of the fairy governess of the prince, she who had opened the great volume. But this dawning passion only served to increase the hatred which that wicked fairy already bore to your unfortunate wife. Unable to resist her desire to see you, she concealed her passion under the colour of a pretext that she was anxious to ascertain if you deserved that a fairy should make such a sacrifice for you as my sister had done, and she had obtained the sanction of the assembly to her guardianship of the prince. She could not have ventured to quit him for any length of time if the ingenuity of love had not inspired her with the idea of placing a protecting genius and two inferior and invisible fairies to watch over him in her absence. After taking this precaution, there was nothing to prevent her following her inclination, which speedily carried her to the fortunate island. In the meanwhile, the women and officers of the imprisoned queen, surprised that she did not come out of her private cabinet, became alarmed. The express orders she had given them not to disturb her induced them to pass the night without knocking at the door. But impatience, at last taking place of all other considerations, they knocked loudly, and no one answering. They forced the doors under the impression that some accident had happened to her. Although they had prepared themselves for the worst, they were not the least astonished at perceiving no trace of her. They called her, they haunted for her in vain. They could discover nothing to appease the despair into which her disappearance had plunged them. They imagined a thousand reasons for it each more absurd than the other. They could not suspect her evasion to be voluntarily. She was all-powerful in your kingdom. The sovereign jurisdiction you had confided to her was not disputed by anyone. Everybody obeyed her cheerfully. The affection you had for each other, that which she entertained for her daughter and for her subjects, who adored her, prevented them from supposing she had fled. Where could she go to be more happy? On the other hand, what man would have dared to carry off a queen from the midst of her own guards and the centre of her own palace? Such a ravisher must have left some indication of the road he had taken. The disaster was certain, although the causes of it were unknown. There was another evil to dread, namely the feelings with which you would receive this fatal news. The innocence of those who were responsible for the safety of the queen's person by no means satisfied them that they should not feel the effects of your wrath. They felt they must either fly the kingdom and thereby appear guilty of a crime they had not committed or they must find some means of hiding this misfortune from you. After long deliberation, they could imagine no other than that of persuading you the queen was dead, and this plan they put instantly into execution. 
They sent off a courier to inform you that she had been suddenly taken ill. A second followed a few hours afterward, bearing the news of her death. In order to prevent your love inducing you to return post haste to court, your appearance would have deranged all the measures they had taken for general security. They paid to the supposed defunct all the funeral honours due to her rank, your affection, and the sorrow of a people who adored her and who wept her loss as sincerely as yourself. This cruel adventure was always kept a profound secret from you, although it was known to every other inhabitant of the Fortune Island. The first astonishment had given publicity to the whole affair. The affliction you felt at this loss was proportionate to your love. You found no consolation except in the innocent caresses of your infinite daughter, whom you sent for to be with you. You determined never again to be separated from her. She was charming and presented you continually with a living portrait of the queen, her mother. The hostile fairy, who had been the original cause of all this trouble by opening the great book in which she discovered my sister's marriage, had not come to see you without paying the price of her curiosity. Your appearance had produced the same effect upon her heart as it had previously done on that of your wife, and instead of this experience inducing her to excuse my sister, she ardently desired to commit the same fault, hovering about you invisibly. She could not resolve to quit you. Beholding you inconsolable, she had no hope of success and fearing to add the shame of your refusal to the pain of disappointment, she did not dare make herself known to you. On the other hand, supposing she did appear, she imagined that by skilful maneuvering she might accustom you to see her, and perhaps in time induce you to love her. But to effect this, she must be introduced to you, and after much pondering to find some decorous way of presenting herself, she hit on one. There was a neighboring queen who had been driven out of her dominions by a zerber, who had murdered her husband. This unhappy princess was raging the world to find an asylum and an avenger. The fairy carried her off and having disposed her in a safe place, put her to sleep, and assumed her form. You beheld, sire, that disguised fairy fling herself at your feet and implore your protection and assistance to punish the assassin of a husband whom she professed she regretted as deeply as you did your queen. She protested that her love for him alone impelled her to this course, and that she renounced with all her heart a crown which she offered to him who should avenge her dear husband the unhappy pity each other you interested yourself in her misfortunes the more readily for that she wept the loss of her beloved spouse and that mingling her tears with yours she talked to you incessantly of the queen you gave her your protection 
and lost no time in re-establishing her authority in the kingdom she pretended to. By punishing the rebels and the usurper, she seemed to desire, but she would neither return to it nor quit you. She implored you for her own security to govern the kingdom in her name, as you were too generous to accept it as a gift from her, and to permit her to reside at your court. You could not refuse her this new favour. She appeared to be necessary to you for the education of your daughter, for the cunning fairy knew well enough that child was the sole object of your affection. She feigned an exceeding fondness for her, and had her continually in her arms. Anticipating the request you were about to make to her, she earnestly begged to be permitted to take charge of her education, saying that she would have no heir but that dear child, whom she looked on as her own, and who was the only being she loved in the world, because she said she reminded her of a daughter she had had by her husband, and who perished along with him. The proposal appeared to you so advantageous that you did not hesitate to entrust the princess to her care and to give her full authority over her. She acquitted herself of her duties to perfection, and by her talent and her affection obtained your implicit confidence and your love as for a tender sister. This was not sufficient for her. All her anxiety was but to become your wife. She neglected nothing to gain this end, but even had you never been the husband of the most beautiful of fairies, she was not formed to inspire you with love. The shape she had assumed could not bear comparison with hers into whose place she would have stolen. It was extremely ugly, and being naturally so herself, she had only the power of appearing beautiful one day in the year. The knowledge of this discouraging fact convinced her that to succeed she must have recourse to other charms than those of beauty. She intrigued secretly to oblige the people and the nobility to petition you to take another wife and to point her out to you as the desirable person. But certain ambiguous conversations she had held with you in order to sound your inclinations, enables you easily to discover the origin of the pressing solicitations with which you were importuned. You declared positively that you would not hear of giving a stepmother to your daughter, nor lower her position by making her subordinate to a queen, from that which she held as the highest person next to yourself in the kingdom and the acknowledged heir to your throne. You also gave the false queen to understand that you should feel obliged by her, returning to her own dominions immediately and without ado, and promised her that when she was settled, there you would render her all the services she could expect from a faithful friend and a generous neighbor, but you did not conceal from her that if she did not take this course willingly, she ran the risk of being compelled to do so. The invincible obstacle 
you then opposed to her love threw her into a terrific rage but she affected so much indifference about the matter that she succeeded in persuading you that her attempt was caused by ambition and the fear that eventually you might take possession of her dominions preferring notwithstanding the earnestness with which she had appeared to offer them to you to let you believe she was insincere in that case rather than you should suspect her real sentiments her fury was not less violent because it was suppressed not doubting that it was beauty who more powerful in your heart than policy caused you to reject the opportunity of increasing your empire in so glorious a manner she conceived for her a hatred as violent as that which she felt for your wife and resolved to get rid of her fully believing that if she were dead your subjects renewing their remonstrances would compel you to change your state in order to leave a successor to the throne the good soul was anything but of an age to present you with one but that she cared little about the queen whose resemblance she had assumed was still young enough to have many children and her ugliness was no obstacle to a royal and political alliance notwithstanding the official declaration you had made it was thought that if your daughter died you would yield to the continual representations of your council it was believed also that your choice would fall upon this pretended queen and that idea surrounded her with numberless parasites it was her design therefore by the aid of one of her flatterers whose wife was as base as her husband and as wicked as she was herself to make away with your daughter she had appointed this woman governess to the little princess these wretches settled between them that they would smother her and report that she had died suddenly but for more security they decided to commit this murder in the neighboring forest so that nobody could surprise them in the execution of this barbarous deed they counted on no one having the slightest knowledge of it and that it would be impossible to blame them for not having thought for assistance before she expired having the legitimate excuse that they were too far from any the husband of the governess proposed to go in search of aid as soon as the child was dead and that no suspicion might be awakened he was to appear surprised at finding it too late when he returned to the spot where he had left this tender victim of their fury and he also rehearsed the sorrow and consternation he was to affect when my wretched sister saw herself deprived of her power and condemned to a cruel imprisonment she requested me to console you and to watch over the safety of her child it was unnecessary for her to take that precaution the tie which unites us and the pity i felt for her would have sufficed to ensure you my protection and her entreaties 
could not increase the zeal with which I hastened to fulfil her decrees. I saw you as often as I could, and as much as prudence permitted me, without incurring the risk of arousing the suspicious of our enemy, who would have denounced me as a fairy in whom sisterly affection prevailed over the honour of her order, and who protected a guilty race. I neglected nothing to convince all the fairies that I had abandoned my sister to her unhappy fate, and by so doing trusted to be more at liberty to serve her. As I watched every movement of your perfidious admirer, not only with my own eyes, but those of a genie, who were my servants, her horrible intentions were not unknown to me. I could not oppose her by open force, and though it would have been easy for me to annihilate those into whose hands she had delivered the little innocent, prudence restricted me, for had I carried off your daughter, the malignant fairy would have retaken her for me, without its being possible for me to defend her. It is a law amongst us that we must be a thousand years old before we can dispute the power of the ancient fairies, or at any rate, we must have become serpents. The perils which accompany the latter condition cause us to call it the terrible act. The bravest amongst us shudder at the thought of undertaking it. We hesitate a long time before we can resolve to expose ourselves to its consequences, and without the urgent motive of hatred, love, or vengeance, there are few who do not prefer waiting for time to make them elders than to acquire their privilege by that dangerous transformation in which the greater number are destroyed. I was in this position. I wanted ten years of the thousand and I had no resource but in artifice. I employed it successfully. I took the form of a monstrous she-bear, and, hiding myself in the forest, selected for the execution of this detestable deed. When the wretches arrived to fulfil the barbarous order they had received, I flung myself upon the woman who had the child in her arms, and who had already placed her hand on its mouth. Her fright made her drop the precious burden, but she was not allowed to escape so easily. The horror I felt at her unnatural conduct inspired me with the ferocity of the brute I had assumed the form of. I strangled her, as well as the traitor who accompanied her, and I carried off beauty after having rapidly stripped off her clothes and dyed them with the blood of her enemies. I scattered them also about the forest, taking the precaution to tear them in several places, so that they should not suspect the princess had escaped, and I withdrew, delighted at having succeeded so completely. The fairy believed her object had been attained, the death of her two accomplices was an advantage to her. She was the mistress of her secret, and the fate they had met with was but what she had herself destined them to. 
in recompense of their guilty services. Another circumstance was also favourable to her. Some shepherds who had seen this affair from a distance ran for assistance, which arrived just in time to see the infamous wretches expire and prevent the possibility of suspicion that she had any part in it. End of section 24